Hello, Digital Cathedral family. Brace yourselves for an awe-inspiring journey on Don Keithley's podcast. Take a seat, find your comfort, and let's plunge into the heart of the divine. And now the September 10th message titled, The New Ecclesia, Part 2. A feast for your spirit. Hey guys, welcome to the Digital Cathedral this morning. Good to see all my family here from around the country and even from around the world. We're going to get right into it this morning. I want to finish up what I started last Sunday morning speaking to you about the new ecclesia. There's some big things popping in the kingdom and you're a part of it. And what I taught last week and especially this week is apropos to you. You're involved in this. So I want you to pay close attention and the things that we're going to get into, you're going to already notice more than likely that the, that the Spirit of God, Spirit of Truth, is working some things in your life on an increasingly um, level of depth. It's going deeper all the time. At least that's what I'm experiencing in my life. I'm going to nail some things down this morning that on first glance you may say, well, I've heard that, I recognize that. But I want you to be open to the Spirit of Truth this morning as he's going to take it down just another notch or two. New Ecclesia. And we're basing this on Matthew chapter 16, verses 16, 17, and 18, which I know are familiar verses. I'm, if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard these verses. But in light of what the Spirit of God is doing today, I think they take on new meaning. And I want to explain three or four words in this passage of Scripture. Matthew 16, verse 13. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they put it on a, on a human standpoint. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus hones it down personally. He says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, just let me point out just two or three words that I think are important in that passage of Scripture. And let me bring it up to 2023. What The new ecclesia. The word that Jesus uses for church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia literally means those that are summoned. Now, today, in most circles, you will hear it. Um, defined as the called out ones. Have no problem with that. But technically, it means those of you that have been summoned, that's you. That's why I want you to pay real close attention to this teaching because this involves you. You're part of those that have been summoned. And I know many times at the Digital Cathedral we talk about, well, God, why'd you, how'd you happen to pick me? All the people in the world you could have picked, and you picked me to be on this front line, this front wave of what's taking place. Well, that's because you're the summoned ones. The next thing I want you to notice is that he builds uh, this church, this ecclesia, on the rock of revelation. Peter means stone, uh, but that he's not building on Peter. He's saying, I'm building on the rock of revelation. So Jesus is that rock of revelation. The more clear we see Jesus, the more we understand what he is going to build on. The more that you see the, uh, Jesus with clarity, with all fuzziness off of the picture, uh, you see the finished work of the cross, everything that he's accomplished, everything he's imputed to us, free of charge, the more you understand what he's going to build, the ecclesia. Um, in Greek, it's spelled E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, and that's what I've chosen to use for last Sunday and this Sunday. I think the English uh, spelling is E-C-C, but I, I'm stuck with the Greek because it's the new ecclesia. I want you to also notice, third of all, that Jesus is the builder. Traditions are not building. Theology is not building it. Uh, Jesus is the sole builder and takes responsibility entirely himself for building the church. 
And the fourth thing I want you to notice from this passage is that nothing can stop it. He says, quite frankly, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the, we are the summoned ones. He's building on the rock of revelation. Jesus is the sole builder and nothing can stop it. That's why you're seeing today this move that is going on around the world of grace, inclusion, unconditional love, things we talk about here at the Digital Cathedral. You're seeing those just sweep the earth like a tsunami. And thousands of people, if not millions every day, are opening their eyes to what you saw maybe last year, five years ago, 10 years ago. I started to see it around the year 2000. So for me, it's been like 23 years. But there are more and more people, and this is going to grow exponentially. So I think it's important that we understand that Jesus is building with those that have been summoned, each man in his order. Uh, he's doing it on the, on the revelation of who he is, and nothing is able to stop it. So this week, what I want to do is I want to fix our focus on what the new ecclesia looks like, or what authentic Christianity is. I'll use those terms interchangeably this morning, the new ecclesia or authentic Christianity. I think they're one and the same because the new ecclesia is going back to what the authentic message of Paul was that he received from Jesus. And Jesus started building right away on the apostle Paul through revelation, who we are in Christ, Christ in us, finished where all those things that Paul revealed. Jesus started laying the foundation down with Paul, and he's still continuing to build on it today. So we're going to look at that new ecclesia this morning, and I want to specifically look at uh, how should our culture see us as we live this out, as we, we begin to enter into this new ecclesia, how should our culture see us? What should we demonstrate before them? How, how, how should our lives begin to unwind? And third of all, most importantly, what's the heart motivation behind this? Now, let me just say to begin with, this is Jesus building. I'm not building it. You're not building it. The Baptists aren't building it. The Lutherans aren't building it. There's no denomination building the summoned out ones except Jesus. Now, last week, what we did is I took the negative side of the coin. I don't, I don't teach negative much. I don't, you know, I, I just, I, that's not me. But last Sunday, we just took the veil and pulled it back on what this world of legalistic religion looks like. And we exposed some things out of Matthew chapter 23. In fact, we pulled nine things out of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23 that Jesus pointed right at the Pharisees and, and accused them. And in doing so, he was giving a message to his followers and to the apostles, the 12 guys that were with him, on how this new ecclesia that he birthed, how it should look what it should not include, uh, the things that it must be careful that it doesn't pulled off into. And I call that bad news religion because there's no good news in it. Now, the real good news, there's no bad news in it. Things we talked about last week are bad news, and there was really not a lot in it that is good, if anything. The hypothesis of the nine things we pointed out last week and what drives legalistic religion is always the same thing. It's, it's performance, it's duties, it's laws and regulations in order to earn favor from God. And God blesses us. We were drilled in church week after week that obedience and dedication and those kind of things, keeping, making sure that you're living a clean life, those are the things that God looks at and then he bases your blessings on how well you're performing. So in this bad news religion, it's the fear of rejection by God that continually drives us to try to prove ourselves worthy of his approval. So let me just recap. I'm not going to teach on these, not going to preach. Although, man, I tell you, when I start on this list tonight, they, they all catch in my spirit like that, and I want to take off on them. But I'm not going to do that this morning because I want to get over to the flip side and show you what this new ecclesia really should look like, how we're going to begin to manifest and show ourselves in a culture that is not at all used to seeing something other than bad news. So Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees and he said, look, you guys are hypocrites. A hypocrite is one who says one thing and lives another. And religion 
forces us into that mold. The fruit of that, or how that begins to appear, is that they, number one, and this is the nine things we covered last week. Number one, they did not practice what they preach. Number two, they oppressed those that they were supposed to be serving. Number three, they loved the adulation. They loved the praise, uh, the recognition of, of crowds. It, it just dropped in me. If you, if you want to go back and have all these just expanded on, you can go back to the teaching last week, the New Ecclesia Part 1, and I just, I, I just really lay these all out. But number four, they love their titles. They love to be called, let me bring it to today. They love to be called prophet, bishop, apostle, uh, pastor. They love some designation before their name because they, that's how they identify with. Their identity comes from their title. And I told you last week, anything other than, a, than being a job description, a title becomes a flesh pumper upper. So I don't call myself doctor. I don't call myself reverend. Uh, some people call me pastor. That's fine. I've been called other things. Uh, that's up to people to recognize you, the way that you function and what you're functioning in. But I, I don't have business cards with you know pastor or doctor. I do use it some at the seminary because it's an educational institution and my board feels that I should use the PhD I have at times. But it's no you know it's not a big deal to me. The fifth thing is they prevented people from entering the kingdom. They operated almost like a toll booth on the freeway and you had to pay the toll in order to get into the kingdom. Uh, they obsessed over monetary matters and they missed the priorities, Jesus said, of mercy and of justice. Uh, number eight, they focused on externals and they failed to address the internal spiritual needs that they had in their life. As long as it looked good, as long as it, it, uh, it was palatable, as long as they appeared to be something. Man, this sounds like church, doesn't it? As long as they appeared to be something, inside they could be all jacked up, all messed up, live, living duplicate lives, living uh, lives that are compartmentalized, uh, they're spiritual one day and they're out in the world part of it the next day. There's no consistency. And number nine, they fight and persecute and slander the messengers of God. That's what Jesus told them. He said, you kill some of the prophets. When they come in my name, you're going to, you're going to kill some of them. So there, there were nine things that today I will say this. They have created a public relations nightmare for the church. These things are still functioning. These things are still flowing in the church. The new ecclesia, authentic Christianity, is none of those things. You can just take that wine skin and toss it in the trash because it that dog doesn't hunt anymore. It, there's no there's no reality to it. it. It doesn't resonate with people. Although people come back week after week, and these things are just laid out and they continue to take it, but there's no life in it. There's no Zoe. No Zoe, no go away, right? So we just wipe clean of it. The new ecclesia, based on Matthew chapter 16, the new ecclesia should look exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the builder of that ecclesia. It's the revelation of him that becomes the foundation. It becomes the, the blocks upon which we build. Jesus was none of those nine. I could go back and read them all off. You'll not find those within the life of Jesus. What he did do was he brought light in Matthew chapter 23 on the negative side of the coin and he showed his disciple, this is how you don't pattern your life. Revelation shows that Jesus is the builder. So we pattern after him. We don't pattern after those nine things. So as sons of God today, as daughters of God today, we're manifesting, we're showing ourselves, we're beginning to break into areas we've never been, and none of it has to do with bad news. It looks like Jesus. Jesus is the head, we're all parts of the body. So the parts of the body have the same DNA, should have the same characteristics, should function in the same way as the head does. There should always be a striking, absolute striking resemblance between every part of the body and the head. So I'm, this morning, I want to give you five things that I said earlier. You're going to notice these are probably already starting to function in your life. When I come through these five, you're going to say, yeah, you know what? I noticed those 
working in my life. I notice those things beginning uh, to be prevalent. I'm recognizing it and I'm seeing myself change because of these five things. And these, these five are what's gonna draw a line of distinction between us and the religion that people are stuck in today. There's gotta be a line of distinction. And once the line is down, brother, it becomes very distinct, becomes very obvious. And you're gonna look back. I do this sometimes. I look back and go, how could I ever been like that? How could I have ever believed that? How could I, I have ever thought that God was gonna eternally punish people in a, in consciously in a fire and torment them for eternity without end. It, you never think about it. You never, you never think it through. That there's no justice in that. Justice at some point has got to be served. I don't care how how bad the crime is. Even in our judicial system today, you may get four a 400 year sentence, but there's an end to that 400 years. There's, there's been nobody that has ever been sentenced eternally. Why? Because, well, your physical body's not going to last that long. But our system of justice even recognizes there comes a point that justice is paid. Yet a religion, there is never that, never that time when justice is paid. And they're thinking, and it's so wrong. It, it just goes on forever. And so you look at those things, you go, how could I ever believe that? Why didn't I see the truth of the good news? All right, so number number one, number one characteristic, and this is working in your life, check it out. The number one characteristic of the new ecclesia that is emerging worldwide and it's beginning to take some shape. Right now, it's still what I envision is like points of light all over the world. There's just one here, one there, one there, one but the But the points of light are beginning to gain density. There's beginning to be more people in particular areas that are are, be, are are being part of the summoned ones, the called out ones, ecclesia, and they're beginning to see Jesus, and he's building on that rock of revelation. But the first defining mark of the new ecclesia, above everything else, is going to be love. That stands number one. Authentic Christianity began as as a as a walk of love, and the new ecclesia that's beginning to arise is getting a, a, a sense, maybe, maybe I could take it down deeper, a revelation of what unconditional love really is. Simply, unconditional love is love with no conditions. It's a love that expects nothing in return. It's a love that doesn't ask anything or require anything. The life of Jesus reflected that. The ministry of Jesus was all about this kind of love. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, he goes through all different scenarios and he's pointing to one thing. He's pointing to a, a culture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that is so contrary to the culture then and it's still contrary to the culture today. Whenever you're in the presence of Jesus, you feel very accepted. You feel ministered to because of his love, because of the love that he, he, he demonstrates to us the ultimate act of love was going to the cross. It wasn't the Father pouring his vengeance out, beating the bajabbers out of Jesus so he didn't have to you. That penal substitution theory is, is demonic. It is absolutely demonic. The, 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 the atonement theory I adhere to is Christus Victor, which says that Christ was victorious over the hell, over graves, over the flesh, and that's what he presented to us was an absolute, total victory. So when you're in the presence of Jesus, you feel loved, you feel accepted, because that's, that's what the authentic design was intended to be. And when you get the revelation of Jesus, you're bound to see it that way. It's, it's a love that's not defined by human acceptance. It's a love that you see active in the life of Jesus daily when he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. So it's the Father through the Son in the Spirit that begins to distribute agape love as us. Have you noticed your, have you noticed your love dial going up? That's one, one thing uh, I think this, this freedom gives us is the ability to love other people without expectations. 
and you, you're not disappointed. You don't feel slighted if, if you're rebuffed. I'm telling you, you got to have a thick skin if you're going to walk this out because you will, you will have pushback. They're, people are not used to being loved unconditionally. They don't know how to accept it. And the first thing they do is revert to their old self, their flesh, their ego, and what you're saying doesn't line up with what they've heard all their life, and so they, they push it away. But you just continue to love them. In John chapter 13, G Jesus kind of laid it down. In John chapter 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, let's get over here. John chapter 13, I, I, I like what Jesus said here. In John chapter 13, I'm going to pick it up. Let me just read verses 34 and 35. Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Then he says in verse 35, this is, this is the new ecclesia right here. He, give, he tells us what it is in verse 34, what this love is. It's the love that he loved us with. As I have loved you, you love one another. So as, when the revelation of Jesus gets clear, you got to see his love. You see the love that the man demonstrated to everybody. The, the more unlovely they were, the more that he loved them. Now, here's the key for the new ecclesia. Listen to me. Verse 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. The way that we show sonship, the way we show that we are a manifesting daughter of God, is the love that we have, he said, one for another. That's going to be the distinguishing mark, and that is the line of demarcation today between the new ecclesia and the old established religion that almost all of us here at the Digital Cathedral came out of. The line of demarcation is going to be the love that we have for one another, and it will be a reflection of the love that we sense Jesus has for us. The more we know that Jesus loves us, the easier it is to love other people. The more you feel accepted by him, the easier it is to accept other people. The less judged you feel by him, the less you judge other people. It all revolves around what this new ecclesia that is arising is beginning to function in. And even as I'm teaching it this morning, I just I feel it rising up within in me, man. This this is awesome. This is what's gonna this is what's gonna change the world. He said, "By this will the world." Let, listen to this, verse thirty-five again. Let me just say it to you exactly right. By this, by this, all all will know. All will know. I like the word "all." That means everybody, without exception, are gonna know that you're. Manifesting as sons, manifesting as daughters, you're a disciple, you're a disciplined learner, if you have love one for another. No word is gape. You can study that through all you want. All right, number two. Here's going to be the second thing that begins to arise within that new ecclesia that makes us obvious, <laughs> an obvious difference between that old, stale, dead religion that we lived in for so long and, and the foundation that Jesus himself is building on the revelation of who he is. Number two, it's grace. You might have known that one was coming, wouldn't you? In some way, all the other four that I'm going to give you off, off number one, they all, kind of, they all kind of take place or are connected to the love of God. But grace is not, um, how can I say it? Grace is not just another facet of God's love or a way of understanding God's love. Here's the way I see it. I want you to catch this. Grace is the avenue, it's the vehicle, it's the, the channel, it's the pipeline through which the love of God flows to people. Let me hit at this angle. Grace is how we demonstrate God's love, agape love. Agape love has two run-in buddies. Number one is unconditional forgiveness. That means that we understand everybody's been automatically forgiven. The, the best way you can understand forgiveness is to fully understand and accept that you had absolutely nothing to do with forgiving you. Had nothing to do with your faith, your confession, your beliefs, your theology, or what church you went to. Uh, what is it? 2 Corinthians 5.19. He reconciled us and forgave us all of our trespasses. So as far as the Father's concerned, the slate's clean. Always has been clean. We're the ones that made the laws, the rules, the regulations, 613 laws of Moses. Who knows how many thousands of laws today that religion has developed to try to get us to live 
And when we fail, we feel like we need to go to God, beg and plead. And it's all based on 1 John 1, 9, which I'm not going to get into today. I've taught on it so many times. But you got, you got to know that agape love has, has two running buddies. First one is unconditional forgiveness. The best thing that you can do is accept the fact that you had nothing to do with your forgiveness. And as soon as you understand that, as soon as you understand that you had nothing to do with your forgiveness, the easier it is to see that it is unconditional. And, and the second running buddy is, is grace. And we talk when we're at the digital cathedral, we talk about pure grace, radical grace, hyper grace, that is totally divorced from any legalism, law keeping, hoop jumping. When, when you demonstrate unconditional forgiveness and grace that is free from any legislation, that's, that's how love becomes demonstrated to people. Grace is the avenue, let me say it again, grace is the avenue, it's the vehicle, the pipeline, the channel through which the love of God actually flows to people. It's all about the Father's unlimited and extravagant giving. I'm trying to recall the verse off the top of my head. It's somewhere in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 14, 15, 16, somewhere right in there. It says, thanks be to God for the undescribable gift, the undescribable gift of his grace. Wow. Authentic Christianity, this new, new wineskin, is on center stage through gracious acts of mercy and love that you and I, the ecclesia, the summoned ones, are demonstrating. It's the love of God that comes through that radical grace that draws people to Jesus. They don't know, there's no defense for it. I mean, there's, there's nothing they can do to, to tear it down or to war against it. And so what Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Think what would have happened over the last 2,000 years if the goodness of God had had the forefront on the message instead of the angry, judicial deity that's just looking for you to do something wrong so he can separate you from himself. Think if we would have, if we would have emphasized what Paul said in that second chapter of Romans that it's the goodness of God that leads us to change our minds. What's going to cause this generation to change their mind about the Father? It's going to be the goodness of God as it's displayed through your life and my life. Have you, have you noticed that? You're, you're sensing the love of God. You're sensing the grace of God. Uh, you like to talk about the goodness of God. It's so far removed from you to try to tell people they're separated, they're sinful, they need to get themselves right with God. Who wants that? Who want, That's not the message. The message is Jesus and Jesus alone, knowing that what he's, he's building within us, the spirit of truth unveiling, it gets stronger and stronger. You know, when you look at Jesus, think about this. Jesus never yelled at anybody. He never forced anybody, never bullied anybody, never intimidated anybody, and never threatened anybody to change their life, especially those that the Pharisees looked at as sinners. He never went to that group of people and said, you better, you better turn or it's good, you're going to burn. He had some choice things to say to the Pharisees, but he, he, then he even didn't bully or intimidate. He laid the truth out. Jesus, Jesus demonstrated one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Luke chapter 4, verses 18, 19, and 20. When Jesus is just starting his ministry, goes in, takes the book at the church, opens it up, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, divinely gifted me. And he goes through seven or eight things. Preach the gospel to the poor. Heal the brokenhearted. And he just goes on and on and on. All of those things are pure demonstrations of love and grace. All of those things. You can read it for yourself. I'm not going to take time. I don't have time this morning. But you go back to Luke chapter 4, 18, 19. We read it how many times here? It, I say, Lord, this has got to be my, my, my motivation. This is my heart. Right here, it's loving grace in action. And it's, and it's directed toward meeting the needs of other people. Jesus drew crowds, man. He drew, he drew multitudes. He wooed them and he won them. Not by his condemnation, 
not by his guilt. And the new ecclesia is going to use words of compassion and grace and love. That's what Jesus worked. He worked mercy and grace. These are not perfect uh, definitions, but I think you get the impact of this, uh, of, of grace and mercy. Grace, I've heard, I've heard it said, and I, I could pick it apart a little bit, but I think you get the emphasis. Grace is giving to you what you don't deserve. It's giving it to you. Now, through, I understand through Jesus we do deserve it, but I think, I think you get the heartbeat of that. It's us being able to uh, receive uh, what's been imputed and imparted to us apart from our good works. That's grace. Mercy, on the other hand, and again, this definition, you probably pick it apart a little bit, but I think you feel the impact of it. Mercy is not giving to you what you do deserve. It's his love and his grace that begins to motivate him toward every human being that is on the planet. And that's the exact way that he deals with you. All right, number three. Here's the third thing that's going to characterize the new ecclesia. It's a very, one word, service. Service. There has never been a human being that has approached the level of service that Jesus did. People flock to Jesus. There's some real keys for the new ecclesia. People flock to Jesus because he sensed their needs. And when he sensed their needs, he met the needs. He really cared for people. He had a heart for people. I have Again, this is probably something you're noticing all of a sudden is beginning to gin within you is a heart for people. All of a sudden, you don't judge the man at the corner that holds a sign up that says, Hungry, need food, and you're not thinking no longer at the back of your mind. He's probably going to use the money for alcohol or dope. That's his problem. But there's a there's something that begins to rise within you and says, look, guy needs help. Give him a couple bucks, right? And so you do. Never before would you have done it. You'd have passed him. I'd say, guy needs to get a job. Shame on him. Be out here on the corner. No, Jesus really cared. And a lot of the people he cared for, probably you and I may have looked at before we understand about the new ecclesia and what's arising within us to demonstrate it, we might have looked at them and judged them or written them off. Jesus ministered food. He ministered healing. He took time, went to their house. Remember the centurion comes to Jesus, said, my servant is ill, my daughter's about to pass away. So Jesus drops everything, heads over to where they are. Those enslaved by bad news religion, Jesus set free. He was forgiven sins before the cross. Did you know that? Did you ever think about that? I, I want to get off into I want to get off into the cross, not being necessary to forgive sins because Jesus was forgiven them beforehand. But I don't want to get it. I don't want to open that can of worms. That's for another day. Service. Jesus demonstrated the night before he was he was crucified. He serves. He serves. Uh, communion, the Eucharist, whatever, Last Supper, whatever you'd like to like to call, he served it, and he served it to all twelve. He served it to the denier, he served it to the betrayer, he served it to the doubter. Everybody was included at that meal because he was there to serve, and it was through those acts of kindness, those acts of love, he washed their feet. Man, they never washed his. He washed theirs. He, 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 he voluntarily went. The last thing, he voluntarily went and gave his life as the supreme, unmatched love demonstrated that the Father through the Son and the Spirit has for all men. Now, those, those were heart motives. I, I think, you know, religion, we've taken the acts of foot washing or you know, communion, we, we've taken those, especially the foot washing thing. We've said, well, that's, and they have foot washing service. That's fine. You want to do that? Go right ahead. But I think Jesus was making an, an, an illustration. He was teaching something. In fact, I know that he was. In John chapter 13, let's go back over there to John 13 for just a second. John chapter 13, and let me, let me pick up a couple of verses from 12. When Jesus had washed their feet, he took his garments and sat down. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for I am. 
Verse 14, if I then am your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet, served you, then also you ought to wash one another's feet. You should serve one another. No greater love has any man, right? For if I have given you an example, given you an example that you should do as I have done to you, most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one that sent him. If you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. The whole point of it was an example of serving. That's exactly what it was. Now, bad news religion does not serve. We're, we're coming out of that. We're coming out, especially leaders, man. God help leaders. There's been a whole generation of church leaders, pastors, apostles, prophets, you know, all the fivefold ministry, all that stuff, where they expected to be served. That's not, that's not the calling. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, he just, I just love the way Jesus nails this down on people. Matthew chapter 20 and verse uh, 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. In other words, those, those that are in positions of authority, they bear it down on those that are under them. Never should be the way. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whosoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. That's the exact illustration that Jesus gave with the foot washing. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave or your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. I'll drink to that. That's my Jesus right there. He's, he gave us an example of what to do, John chapter 13, and then turns around and says in Matthew chapter 20, this is the way you don't want to do it. Jesus set the example of service. All right, number four. Number four. This is contrary to religion again, but I bet you're starting to sense it developing in your life. Number four, humility. Humility is not... Let me put it another way. Humility is having a modest opinion of your importance. That's contrary to our culture. We live in a world of self-importance. We live in a world of pride. And those things mark leaders and those things stand out, right? Everything in life from Jesus in his life from the start to the finish pointed to humility. Jesus walked humbly. In John chapter 15 and verse 13. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Have you, have you noticed that starting to, to come with anywhere? You, you don't have to be recognized. <coughs> you, you don't have to be sitting in the front row. You don't have to have your name on the chair. You don't have to be called out of the crowd and recognized. See, that, that's, a, that's a work of humility that's going on within us. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. That word life there is the word suke. We get the word psyche from it. Um, how, what is the greatest way that you can lay your life down? It's not being nailed, nailed to a cross today or uh, martyred in some way. The greatest way, listen, the greatest way that we can lay our life down for somebody is give them time. Your life is made up of time. When you give somebody your time, when you stop, when I stop every week with the multiple messages and questions I get, and I stop and answer those, I stop and reply. Let me just say, please give me some grace on that. Sometimes it gets overwhelming. You can imagine with 5,000 Facebook friends and 6,800 people on the Don Keithley ministry page, the, the amount of, of messages and questions and stuff I get, a lot of them are the same, same thing over and over and over again. And I don't know why people can't research and, and search for themselves, but I'm supposed to answer promptly. Had a lady this week who was all upset because I didn't, I didn't reply back within the time frame that she thought I should. I was out of the house and busy all day and gone, but she got a little bit twerked at me. I'm sorry if I don't get back as fast as I should, but I'm laying my life down, and you're laying your life down when you spend time helping somebody, when you answer a question, when you devote some time to them. Think, think of the, the humble surroundings. 
that Jesus came from. Humility is an important point. Jesus was born in this little old place over there, uh, Nazareth. He was, he was, you know, Bethlehem. He, was, he started his life. It was a little town out of the spotlight. It was not the big Jerusalem. Jesus later came into entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, not riding this big white horse that's prancing and trained. He came in on a lowly donkey. That There was no chariot, no trained horse, uh, just a lowly donkey. I think Jesus did that on purpose. He understood about public perception. I think that really was the heart of Jesus, the way that he did things. Religious pride opposes humility. And maybe that's something you've had to come out of. Maybe that's something that the Spirit has really worked on in your life is getting you out of that, that and I'm, I'm being a little demonstrative, but out of that thing where you go, look at me. I'm not as bad as those guys. Look at those bad sinners over there. I'm sure glad that's not me. Religion is fueled by the pride of performance. You know what humility does? Humility accepts my total dependence on the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Humility makes you ever so grateful. That's probably another thing you've seen beginning to grow. You're grateful for what the Father has done. You don't feel under pressure. You don't feel obligated. You've got to uh, praise him all day long. But man, there's something in you that says, Father, this is good stuff, man. I appreciate you being with me like this. Religious pride is what us as the serpent does Eve or did Eve in the garden into thinking that we can live by our choices. I can live by my wits. I'm just, I'm a step sharper than everybody else. I'm just always move ahead. That's pride. Humility puts that in to check. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, I haven't used as much scripture this morning as I do a lot of times, but I, I sense that you can hear what I'm saying and it's resonating because this new ecclesia is emerging and I'm excited about it because where we've been points of light what you're going to begin to see now are pockets of people beginning to come together and it might be another year might be 18 months off I'm not sure but I'm seeing this beginning to take place the need to have fellowship and to have strengthening from one another we we've learned to go it alone I think, I think the Father planned it that way. I think we had to learn that we could stand by ourselves if there was nobody that was patting us on the back or agreeing with what we said, we were still able to hold fast to that which we were shown. And that's very, 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 very important. Jesus stood alone. Paul stood alone. Moses stood alone. David stood, I mean, they, that's the mark of somebody that has, is a trailblazer is that you can go it by yourself. In humility, depending on dependent on him. Paul said it like this Philippians chapter two, verse three. Philippians chapter two, verse three. Back up one chapter there. All right. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of other people. So humility doesn't mean I just throw myself down as a doormat and everybody can run all over me. He said, look out for your interest. But he said, you need to look out for the interest of others also. Don't do things through, through, uh, through vainness, through pride. He said, but in, in loneliness of heart. He said, begin to approach those things. I think that's so important. Humility is dependence and trust in a father who always knows best. Always knows best, no matter what. All right, number, number five. I've saved the best till the last because I think this is, is really something religion has lacked. And I think this new ecclesia is going to begin to demonstrate this in spades. You understand when I'm going there? It's a little bit of a worldly term there, but I think you understand what I'm saying. This is what's going to really begin to show us. And that is number five, the thing, the new characteristics, the new ecclesia, totally opposed to the nine things that we looked at last week. It's going to be joy. There's going to be a joy about us that the world has never seen. Authentic Christianity, the new ecclesia, is going to be filled with joy. Now, joy is not happiness. Happiness depends on happenings. 
Depends on circumstances. Joy, actually joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of a spirit development within us. The Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Scripture says in His presence there is fullness of joy. The more time you spend in His presence, I, I exhort you to do that all the time, encourage you, spend a little time every day, carry on a running conversation with the Father, driving in your car, riding your motorcycle, whatever you're doing, out on a skateboard, whatever your deal is, roller skating, skateboard, whatever. Just learn to have a running conversation with Him. Sitting in your chair, instead of staring off into space, just be aware of His presence. Be conscious of it. And the more you are, the more that you see this joy developing. And I know that many of you, I have gone beyond happiness and there is an exuberant joy that is rising up within you. See, you don't find joy in bad news. Religion only has a sense of, of desperately trying to please the Father. And if they feel like they're pleasing the Father, they're happy. But all of a sudden they don't sense His presence, they're not happy. If, if you see God angry, hostile, separated from His creation, if you see a God that's planning vengeance and wrath and pouring out his displeasure on his creation, how could you have joy? You might get happy for a while. See, you get in one of those charismatic services, people get all happy. Happy, happy, happy. But that's not joy. No wonder they lack joy. I don't, I don't know. Looking back, man, I, we didn't have a lot of joy in the church. We had our nose to the grindstone. And no, as a result of that, no wonder evangelism was weak. Who wants to be part of a group, of a church, that doesn't have, they're not, they're not joyful. There's no joy in there. Now, when you begin to understand, man, that we've all been redeemed, we've all been reconciled, we have peace through the blood of the cross, we've been given a position as a son to reign in life through the gift of the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness, when those things settle down into you, the burden lifts, the weight lifts. And all of a sudden, you can say, Father, thank you. You have done all of this for me. The life of have to evaporates. I am so glad to be out from that life of have to. And all of a sudden, I I've been living for 20 years because I want to. I don't have to do what I do on Sunday morning. I, I could just go lay on the beach in Florida. I could just go retire, do nothing. I don't want to. I want to be here on Sunday morning. Just a, a brand new opportunity opened up this week. I'll be telling you more about it, but I have an opportunity uh, to, to be on television, and I'm I'm really praying about it. I'm going to need some help because it's going to be there's going to be production costs, editing costs, people costs. It's there's going to be more to it. But the opportunity presented itself and I want to. It's not that I, I I'm under a weight that I have to. In a world that is full of anxiety, in a world that is full of fear and tension and selfishness, those things all bring unhappiness. In a world like that, Joy, believe me, joy is going to set you apart. As that joy develops, and you're not moved by every situation, every circumstance. It's, it, it, if, if it's not too good to be true, it's probably not the gospel. And joy, man, joy is a realization that it is almost too good to be true. So as we, as we compare uh, God's amazing grace with the religion of Legalism, as this new ecclesia begins to arise, and all those things in Matthew chapter 23 that still have characterized religion today, as those things continue to evaporate and dissolve, may the Father continue to reveal to us the Son, the foundation upon which this new ecclesia is built. And may we come to a great appreciation of how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love that He has for us really is as we manifest as sons and daughters in the kingdom. The cross means that all we do, by virtue or by vice, has no bearing on the situation. I mean, right there, that gives me understanding of love, understanding of grace. It certainly, it makes me humble, but most of all, man, it gives me great joy. The good news is that nothing changes his view of us. Nothing changes his perception. 
Nothing changes his love. Nothing changes his non-separation. Nothing changes his willingness. Listen to I'm all done. Nothing changes his willingness to accept you just like you are, not as you should be. Because frankly, none of us are as we should be. But he takes us just like we are. I'm telling you, this new ecclesia is going to be an exciting thing. It's going to take the world. You're not going to have to beg and plead with people to be part of it. They're going to run to you. Every man shall know the Lord. He, no one can teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least. I'm looking forward to that day. And it's just, it's on us, man. It already is gaining momentum. All right, that's all I got for this morning. Father, I just thank you for every, every attender at the Digital Cathedral. Father, I thank you that you challenge us, you stretch us, but it's not to make us feel unworthy or that we should do better. It's just it's a stretch so that you pour new wine into that wineskin. And Father, we are flexible. We confess today we're flexible to receive and understand all that you've imputed and freely given to us. Pray for every person here today that this week that's in front of us would be a week of revelation and discovery of what your love and your grace and your mercy and all that you have for us really means to us. Father, thank you. And thank you for being with me this morning at the Digital Cathedral. See you next Sunday morning. Thanks for lending us your ears. Just a quick reminder. Our Digital Cathedral on YouTube gives subscribers the privilege of a front row seat every week. It's a place where our collective excitement amplifies. If you're ready to give, go to donkeithley.com and click on Donate. Your continuous support propels our growth, and for that, we're immensely grateful. Don't forget to hit that follow button and spread the love by sharing this life-giving message with your friends. Have a week filled with blessings and divine encounters. Until next time, stay in grace.